And for step 10, I bring you Penny Z. Hi, my name's Per. I'm an alcoholic and addict. Good morning. I don't play golf, but I heard a wonderful uh, line yesterday on the TV. They were advertising some golf video by Leslie Nielsen. He gets on there and he says, the, the interviewer says, well, why do they call it golf? And he says, well, because all the other four-letter words were taken. <laughs> anyway, I'm supposed to talk about step 10. Continue to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. This step has been extremely important in my recovery in a number of different ways, and I guess I'd just like to tell you a little bit about that this morning. Um, when I got to this 12-step program, I really had a great deal of difficulty with step one, and it was step 10 that finally ultimately helped me with that which may sound ridiculous, but I'll just tell you a little bit about that and how that happened. I uh, got to Alcoholics Anonymous after a number of years of drinking and drugging and being completely unmanageable. My life was unmanageable, so was everything else about uh, the, the situation around me. And one of the things that I had a firm hold on that kept me... Uh, out of recovery for a long time was the deep conviction that I understood alcoholism on an intellectual level and was familiar with all the scientific literature about it. You know, big mistake, but I didn't understand that at the time. Uh, and one of the things that uh, kept me going back out again for more research was the idea that I would come to Alcoholics Anonymous, I would go to meetings, I would work the steps, that should take maybe two, three months max, right? And then I'd be okay. I only got half of the first step. I got the part about being powerless over alcohol after the first drink. But I didn't get the part about being powerless over alcohol before the first drink or the first dose of whatever drug I happened to be using at the time. And I just couldn't quite get this whole thing. Uh, and it wasn't until I was reading the 10th step at a meeting. Now, this same step meeting that I used to go to every Friday night in Baltimore gave me two wonderful insights out of step 10. Uh, and the first part was somebody was reading something from the big book about the 10th step, and it came to the part where it says, we are not cured of alcoholism. What we really have is a daily reprieve based on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. This is in step 10 in the big book, and I thought to myself, oh, is that what they're talking about here. I mean, I keep kept expecting to get cured of alcoholism, and it never happened. And so I really think it was step 10 and that particular piece in the big book that helped me finally get around to taking step one and realizing exactly what powerlessness was all about. And then as I went on in my recovery and worked other steps and made progress and worked hard with my sponsor to get over some of my character defects, so to speak, um, Something else kept hanging me up all the way. I had these two irrational thinking patterns, these two deep-seated, firmly held belief systems that had never been questioned. Other people had questioned them plenty of times, but I had never questioned them. Uh, I think they probably originated as a combination of the dysfunctional family I grew up in 
and all the years of drinking and drugging and lying to myself and others to get out from under the consequences of it. Uh, but the bottom line was I believed firmly two things that turned out to be completely untrue about the world around me and my own self. The first one of which was that I was responsible for everybody else's happiness. That sort of sounds codependent, I guess, right? <laughs> but I firmly believe that, and I never questioned it. I thought that if other people around me were unhappy, that somehow it was my fault because I wasn't working hard enough to make them okay. And I continued to run into difficulty over and over again in my recovery because I was continuing to practice uh, this belief. And the other one, which was really much worse in a way, uh, but also harder to get rid of, was the belief, the firmly held, unquestioned conviction, probably amounts to a fixed delusion, that other people were responsible for my happiness. And that if I was miserable, it was your fault, or somebody else's fault, or the situation was causing it, or, you know, people, places, and things were somehow responsible for my unhappiness. And I continued to run into brick walls over and over again in my recovery. The first year of my sobriety was probably the most miserable time in my entire life. I was working on a fourth step. I kept getting sent back to do more homework by my sponsor, who was not satisfied that I was being rigorously honest. Uh, I went to meetings and sat there and fumed through the entire meeting, uh, and things were just not changing. And then this same step meeting, this Friday night step meeting in Baltimore that I always went to, uh, one night was doing the 10th step again. And someone read the section on page 90 in the 12 and 12, which begins with the words, it is a spiritual axiom that whenever we are disturbed, the problem is with us. Now, my sponsor had had me reading page 449 on a daily basis, and it said exactly that, but somehow I wasn't getting it. And I had, in that step meeting at St. David's Church, what I think is the closest thing I've ever had to a spiritual experience. When I heard this passage from the 12 and 12, which I'd read a million times and heard 20 times in step meetings, I heard it again with a whole new emphasis, and I don't know. It was like it was like a uh, a light bulb came on inside of my head. You know, some people talk about this as a spiritual awakening or an enlightenment or an epiphany. I call it an oh shit experience. It was sort of like oh shit, this is what they've been talking about all along, and this is what's wrong with my program. I keep expecting that if I change you and you and the situation I'm in or the job I have that I don't like or whatever, that somehow I'm going to find this peace and serenity. And I've never really gotten the point yet that it's me that I've got to work on because I'm the one who's responsible for my mood today or how I feel about the situation today. And this is what acceptance is all about. Now, I guess you must think I'm a pretty slow learner because it took me so long to get around... To, to recognizing exactly what the hang-up was here. But it was the 10th step, really long before I was ready to, t to begin taking the 10th step in a meaningful way, uh, that finally allowed me to see this and to start to make some changes in my perspective on the world. I was able to begin the process of shifting my focus from trying to make everybody else happy and expecting you to make me happy to the other way around to beginning to let go of trying to make everybody else happy and start working on changing myself so that I could be satisfied and contented and ultimately happy with the way things were as they are. Now, this was an entirely new enlightenment for me 
the 10th step really, uh, uh, I treasure it. I, I read it all the time, and I, I do it in my day-to-day life on a regular basis. Now, I don't do it the way it was usually, it was originally recommended to me by my sponsor and other people that I met in the program. People talk about sitting down at the end of the day and taking an inventory and thinking through the things that you did and basically coming up with the ones that you needed to do something to correct. Well, I'm useless at night. I'm totally useless at night. By the time the end of the day comes around, I have completely exhausted my intellectual powers, and all I can do is veg out in front of the television or read a book. So I do my 10th step in the morning, kind of combined with the 11th, and kind of remembering the 8th and 9th on a regular basis, and this is what I usually do with it. I get up in the morning, the alarm goes off, I run around the house like a mad woman, getting dressed, throwing things in the car, packing the lunch, which I should have put together the night before, but was too exhausted to do it, get into the car and start driving to the gym. And on the way to the gym, I'm playing this particular tape that I have that has sort of quiet, soothing music. And I'm able to begin to shift my focus from all the crazy stuff that's going on in my head about what's going to happen today and whatever, into a more calm and serene state. And then I began to think about yesterday and what happened and how I was responsible for making myself ineffective, miserable, angry, frustrated, and all those kinds of things, and what I need to do about that. By the time I get to the gym, I kind of have a, a, a list in mind of... Uh, it's an inventory of the things that I did yesterday. Not that we're bad. I, mean, I was always good at making those kind of inventories, making long lists of all my sins and beating myself up for them, you know, or making long lists of things I should feel guilty about or ashamed about. I was always good at that, too. This is a different kind of inventory. This is a pragmatic inventory. This is like, what did I do today that got in my own way? And how am I going to change it to make it different from here on in? On a day when I do this kind of process between the house and the gym, I usually have a good start on making this day somewhat better than the last, or at least not screwing up in exactly the same ways as I did yesterday. If I forget to do this, especially when I'm on the road or something interferes with my schedule, I'll end up repeating the same crap day after day after day and not even noticing it because I need to take this time to think through what has happened and where I've tripped myself up with some of my own uh, irrational thinking patterns. Um, the other thing that I then do is try, uh, to the best of my ability, to get into a serene place and uh, to meditate a little bit about what's coming up. I, don't, I try not to project about that. Someone I care about very much in the program told me many years ago that if you start the day out trying to make yourself an empty bowl and allow yourself to be filled up by what comes during the day, you won't feel so frustrated at the end of the day that you didn't, that your plans didn't work out the way you had in mind. So I always try to do that. I'm not as good at that as I am at this inventory process, but I'm, I'm working at it, okay. Uh, that's my routine uh, in the morning before I get to the gym. Of course, then I turn around and undo a great deal of it by <laughs> uh, starting my workout and being unsatisfied with how it goes. And, you know, the, the same old pattern will come back uh, very quickly, and there certainly is no way in which this is a perfect approach to dealing with this or I, that I'm really all that good at it, but I am working at it, and I am reminding myself on a daily basis that I am the one who determines where I am spiritually, emotionally, and psychologically that particular day. That's the important thing to me about the 10th step. It's not how many faults I can find in myself, which used to be the way 
that I undid all the good things that I accomplished in my life by worrying about all the bad things. It's not about making a list of all the people who had harmed me, because I used to be very good at that, too, you know, and I could make long, involved lists of all the people I was going to get even with. That, that was alcoholic thinking, and I recognize it for that now, and I try not to do that, even, uh, even in the shower. Interestingly enough, for some reason, some people say they do this in the car. I do it in the shower. When I'm in the shower, I start running through all the negative things that have happened to me and feeling sorry for myself. It's sort of... Maybe it's the humidity, but it sort of puts me in. <laughs> I have a hard time not getting into a pity party uh, in the shower. Once I tried getting one of those radios that you turn on in the shower, you know, so I could play happy tunes and and not, but it didn't work very long, and <laughs> now it doesn't work at all. Uh, but the shower is a risky uh, place for me, but the car is actually fairly good, especially early in the morning before a lot of other people are out on the road, and I'm able to get myself into a, a space where I have the focus where it belongs, where I have the locus of control where it belongs. I'm responsible for me, you're responsible for you, and if we can keep that boundary straight through the day, we're likely to get through the day without tripping each other up. Uh, and the kind of work I do, I need that kind of boundary very much because there are lots of people who are impinging on my serenity on a day-to-day basis and trying to make me do something about things that I'm completely powerless over. And even if those people weren't there, I'd find them somewhere, you know, whether it was at the dry cleaners or the, uh, the gas station or anything else that I have to do. I'm always on the lookout for that. I think I was trained for that as a child. I can sort of remember my mother telling me that her philosophy of life was, first of all, if you always expect the worst, you'll never be disappointed. That was one of her repeated sayings. She said that all the time. The other one was that you should keep track of all the people that hurt you. Because maybe you'll get a chance to get even someday. That was that was the way she So I have trouble not doing that, you know, and not expecting the worst. And not projecting and then acting as though the worst has already happened. You know, I'm good at that, too. I'm, I'm good at walking into the office and saying, well, all right for you. And they don't have any idea what I'm talking about because uh, it's all been based on my projections, you know. Uh, on what day was it? Thursday, uh, Friday, Dr. Millman was talking about paranoia and adolescent thinking patterns and people getting paranoid. I, I was a well-trained paranoid when I got to this program, and I still have to struggle with it on a day-to-day basis. I can easily put myself right back into that paranoid thinking pattern where, first of all, I mean, paranoia is sort of an interesting phenomenon if you think about it. Uh, I had a lot of it as a kid growing up, and it was certainly not helped by all the alcohol and cocaine that I consumed during my active chemical addiction, and it can still be reactivated any time I feel like it. It's based on several of these irrational assumptions, though. The first one of which is that I am important enough for other people to be trying to get me. It's really kind of an ego trip, isn't it? I mean, when you think about it. Because most of the time, people are not really doing it to me. They're just doing it. And I can't tell you how many times my first sponsor said that to me over and over again in the early years of my recovery, and I wish you were around today to remind me of it some days, because I really can get into that that headset where, you know, whatever's going wrong in the world today, it's all about me. You know, because obviously the world circles around me, and I'm the one who's the most important thing. I mean, the governor of the state is changing the rules just to get at me, you know. The, uh, the the State Department has appointed new prosecuting attorneys that don't understand my system just because they want to jerk my chain and pluck my last nerve here, you know? I mean, I can get into that self-centered space very easily, and to me, that's a large part of what the 10th step is about, is to get out of that mess, 
to get away from that self-centered, selfish, and paranoid thinking pattern and to get back into looking at how I am responsible, what I need to do to keep my spiritual condition, to keep myself moving forward in this recovery program and not giving in to all the negative stuff that happens around me every day, focusing on what's positive, focusing on what I can do something about, uh, focusing on changing the things that are within my control to change, and learning again, once again, over and over again, how to accept what's in front of me that I can't change. That sounds so simple. It sounds so basic. It's really basic AA. And basic AA is what has kept me alive one day at a time for a a good number of 24 hours now. I also find that if I get away from the rooms, I stop being good at doing this uh, this kind of an inventory process. If I don't go to meetings on a regular basis, I lose track of the thinking pattern that, that, that makes this work. I don't know how that happens exactly. It doesn't seem very scientific that I should go and listen to other people share their problems and I talk about mine and somehow that puts me back into a different headspace. But it works. It works on a day-to-day basis. And if I go to AA and practice the steps and practice particularly this 10 step on a regular basis, I survive and grow and enjoy the time that I have and stop projecting about all the crap that's going to happen up ahead, stop worrying and beating myself up for what happened, and just live in the moment. The 10th step to me is really about how to live in the moment, how to live one day at a time. I never knew that before I got to this program. I'm extremely grateful to this program for giving me some answers about how to do that. And I'm very grateful to be here with you all today. This has been such a wonderful experience for me at this meeting. It always is. This is, I think, my eighth IDAA meeting. I wouldn't miss it unless something dreadful happened. It's just a priority for me every year. And it's an honor to be here and have a chance to share a little bit about my stuff with you. But I'm mostly grateful for the stuff that you all have shared with me this week and what I'll be taking back with me. I hang on to it for the whole year. And uh, thank you very much. Thank you, Penny. And I guess if you followed your program, the woman behind me does not look like Burns. Uh, unfortunately, Burns hasn't been feeling well these past few days and, uh, and had to go home. Uh, so I've asked a friend who I've met through these rooms a number of years ago if she would be kind to share Step 11 with us. And I present Julie M. Thanks. My name is Julie. I'm an alcoholic. And I thought I would try to just tell you what it was like and what happened and what it's like now in terms of my conscious contact with a higher power. Um, I liked something that uh, I think the first lecturer said in the scientific program about lability in the pleasure center in alcoholics and drug addicts because that that sounds right to me. My seesaw is very loose, and it doesn't take much for it to swing all the way one way or the other, as I'll explain. And I was a very conscientious little kid and uh, probably a hero child in my family, so I was very interested in doing everything right. And I remember that uh, we went to church. I grew up in the South, and we always went to Sunday school. 
and I tried to do everything perfectly, and I always said my prayers, and I was very diligent about these things. And I remember, I remember when I was about seven or eight one night. Um, it was the night before the first day of school, and I was so excited I couldn't sleep. And I heard the news come on in the other room, and that meant it was 10 o'clock, and I'd never been up that late before in my life. And I was scared. So I promised God if he would let me fall asleep, I wouldn't ask him for anything else for a whole year. And I literally went through the next year deleting all the phrases from the Lord's Prayer that ask for anything. Um, I didn't know how you were supposed to feel when you went to church. Um, I never felt anything in particular. I thought it was something you're supposed to do. You're supposed to, you're supposed to act this way. And I remember as a little kid being very interested in this and trying to whip up spiritual energy inside myself, trying to feel holy, you know. And I never could do it. I remember the one time when I was young that, that I came across something, some of my friends and I came across this uh, sort of primitive Baptist church at home where they sang uh, old-fashioned hymns. And it was called Singspiration, and the young people were supposed to go there at night um, on Sunday. And they sang these hymns, these really stirring old gospel songs, you know. It really gave you a feeling right in here. And and some of us really wanted to go there. But our parents, who were straight-laced Presbyterians, kind of didn't approve of that much emotion in religion. And besides which, they were just a generation or two off the farm themselves, and they wanted to sort of be middle class, and it, it just didn't, I can understand how they felt, given where they were coming from, so we were discouraged from doing that. Um, by the time I'm, I found alcohol, it absolutely served the purpose for me. I um, early questioned the existence of God intellectually, and so by the time I started drinking and, and doing drugs, it was very clear to me that that was a perfect, you know, um, substitute for anything spiritual. Because there were other kids at college at that time who were reading um, one of those books, Carlos Castaneda and things like that. They were looking into spiritual themes and uh, meditating in Eastern religions and all that and sitting cross-legged and meditating. And I remember thinking, well, that's stupid. I just have about three or four drinks and I'm there. And I was right. It was true. So I continued on like that. Um, by the time I had to get clean and sober, because I think I had just about gone as far as I could with my drugs, I I uh, learned early on that you could take other things besides alcohol, and they would do the same job, and they didn't smell on your breath, you know. Um, and also that if you got to the end of one class of drug and it wasn't working anymore, all you had to do was add another one. And then you could extend it a little bit longer. So I did chemistry experiments like Penny was just talking about. I had a PDR. And I, I was firmly convinced that if I had a PDR and I knew what the doses were of all the drugs and what they looked like, that it was safe for me to take them. And, and still, I was not long ago making up a list at the treatment center where I'm the medical director now for our patients on which drugs to avoid. And going through that PDR gave me a hard time, boy. I had to talk to somebody about it. Um, but at any rate, I kind of ran ran through all the drugs, and and my life got out to the end where I could not 
see anything more to do with it. And my first spiritual experience really came when um, I had finally been through a mental hospital and I'd been through a treatment center and I'd, I'd already found out what was wrong with me, which I didn't know for a long time. Now I knew what was wrong, but I didn't want to do anything about it. And I finally came to this decision based on some particularly ugly things that were going on in my life that, okay, I was going to have to go and stay in a place and get sober, but but I couldn't do it until I sold my house and until I got health insurance because I'd used up my health insurance on the mental hospital and I you know, had no more coverage. And the house, just like mine, across the street had taken two years to sell, so I figured I was okay for a while. Within a week, I had health insurance and the house had sold. And that's how my higher power presents himself to me, is when things, whoa, like that happen, then it's like the slides being greased, you know? Everything's just moving out of the way. So I slipped on into the treatment center <clears throat> and felt as if I were going to to be decapitated. You know, I was in that little cart they take you up to the guillotine, and uh, I was going to die. And I got there, and I had a real spiritual experience when... Um, I finally decided to give up and follow their directions. They were telling me to go to a recovery home. And by the way, my husband and I had, my boyfriend and I had gotten married the day before I went into treatment. Um, that's how I got the health insurance. <laughs> well, they said don't make any major changes in the first year, so I figured I'd get around that. He later came down to visit, and in the second week they, they said, I think you need to be somewhere also. So they put him in. Um, but at any rate, they were telling me I had to go to a recovery home, and I still wince whenever I hear those words. And I wanted to go back home, and I had two little tiny kids, and I had a private practice, and um, I had a brand-new husband. Yeah, I don't want to go to any recovery home. And I started thinking, how can I get out of this? And I thought, well, maybe I can just not go. And I thought, well, no, I, every time I haven't followed directions, it hasn't worked in the past. Well, maybe I can act as if I'm real well. And then they'll not ask me to go, and I thought, <laughs> I don't know how to do that. And so finally, riding in the back seat of the station wagon one day, I had my feet up, I'd going out the window, you know, and you, you, that back seat faces the back in the big station wagon. They take you to the meetings and bring you back in. And um, all of a sudden, it dawned on me that I could either go to this place they wanted me to go to, or I could lose everything I had, and then I could go. And... At that moment, I felt this very strange physical shift in the way things, where things were. It's like I came down and the mountains went up, and um, it wasn't ecstatic or anything like that, but I do remember that the next thing out of my mouth was something I never would have said before. A kid next to me was complaining that his stepmother had gotten rid of his apartment while he was in here, and I said, well, I guess if you were meant to lose it, you were going to lose it one way or the other. And from that time on, I felt different. I just, I felt different. Everything was different. Everything looked different. In fact, I remember sitting there in the lounge a couple mornings later wondering, I wonder if I like William F. Buckley now. <laughs> I didn't know. Everything looked different. So never being one to do things in half measures. By the way, they saw this transformation in me. They saw this, and they didn't require me to go to any long-term homes or anything. So I went home with my husband who had stayed in benzodiazepine withdrawal for the next year. And, oh, that was a hell of a year. 
he would jump out of the car at stop signs and run away. <laughs> I wouldn't see him for hours. And I thought, oh, my God, what have I done? My psychiatrist had called the treatment center and said, please, try to get her not to get married. And I thought, well, I don't know why you're meddling in my business. But I thought, well, that guy might have been right. But at any rate, we were going through all the difficulties of the first year of marriage, first year of sobriety, benzodiazepine, withdrawal, and everything else. And I, I don't know. I have no breaks. Okay? I have no breaks, as far as I can tell, in any direction. So if I had been saved, by God, I was going to be saved. So I went and I found the most fundamentalist church in town. And, <laughs> and I started going. And it was a real evangelical church. I mean, they wanted you to start talking to the people next to you in the plane and ask them if, if Jesus Christ, you know, was their Lord and Savior. And uh, they had a thing written up on the altar there that said, you are not your own, you were bought with a price. And I could see that. So I went home and I wrote out a check for one-tenth of all the money I had and I gave it to him. And my husband was pissed. And I tried to get him to come and I took him once and he said, these people are a bunch of... Uh, con men here at this church no I, he just couldn't see it so I bought a bunch of Bibles and I was reading them all the time and I was listening to the Christian radio station where they're talking about uh, you, they're advertising books you can buy to find out where the en- when the end of the world is coming and when the rapture is going to be and how people are going to be raptured right up out of their cars on the freeway and what's going to happen are the cars going to like crash into things or what you know this is stuff they, they really worried about um, meantime I think that that I was getting drunk on spirituality, you know. You can do that. Meantime, I do think that all along the way, whenever I've been in contact with my higher power, it's been through these odd little coincidences. So I, I, in the morning, too, I also do my what prayer meditation I do now as I'm driving. And Annie says she can't tell, can't quite tell if it's if it's the Holy Spirit or if it's caffeine. And and I understand that. <clears throat> but where was I? I lost my train of thought here. Coincidences, yeah. I just have to tell you one thing that I do believe was my higher power in action. I was uh, just brand new sober, and I drove through a Kentucky Fried Chicken, and there was this nutty-looking guy with tattoos hanging out the window, taking the orders, and he said, uh, do you have a message for me? And I said, I beg your pardon? And he said, yeah, yeah, God told me to expect a message today, so I've been asking everybody who came through and God told me to expect a miracle. And I thought, no. You're joking, right? And I said, well, I'll tell you the truth. I carry a message. And it's the message of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he says, oh, no, 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 no. That's okay. I don't, I, I don't, I don't need that one. <clears throat> so I said, okay. And uh, he had a bunch of church flyers and stuff people had given him. So I took my chicken. I drove off. And I got down the street. And I realized I hadn't paid him. So I had to go back, get in line again, go around. And when I came up to the window, I said, he sent me back. (laughs) I think that was my higher power. Okay, nowadays, I don't try to to guide. I did not continue. I go. So at this point, I don't try to run it. I just show up and ask. And my prayers now include whatever, fuck it, (laughs) and please. And that's about it. And if I'm getting ready to, to talk to a patient um, who needs to be discharged or is very angry or is going to something tough coming up I'm scared of, I just say, okay, you know. And the idea is I don't understand what God is. It was the truth at first when I didn't know what God was. 
I could I could use the truth for a higher power. And sometimes it was Aretha Franklin because mm. I think gospel music comes from wherever God is, you know, the way it makes you feel. And sometimes it's where a good joke comes from. That's God, but but I don't understand God and I just say a few simple words and then I try to, you know, whenever I'm upset, identify what I've done wrong, admit it to another human being, ask that it be removed. Um, and make an amend if I need to. I just I do that part. And in, as far as the the other part is concerned, I just kind of um, let it happen. And for me, it, it doesn't happen like a high now. But if I look around me, I can tell it's very definitely happening. Thank you. As I tried to reach her yesterday. When I found out that Burns had asked me uh, that I better find a backup. And I kept on calling her and calling her at 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock. And I finally reached her at 11 o'clock and asked her if she would speak on the 11th step. And there are no coincidences. And thank you, Julie. And for step 12, I bring you Michael P. Um, hi everyone, my name is Michael, I'm an alcoholic and an addict. Uh, for those of you who made it through all 12 of these, congratulations, that's great. I'm going to take my watch off and keep an eye on it. Actually, no, I'll take my watch off and throw it away. Um, especially brave is my wife, Noelle, who's here, uh, who is going to hear my AA type of talk uh, for the umpteenth time and who keeps uh, assuring me that I'm going senile because I keep repeating myself. Um, she assures me I'm going senile because I keep repeating myself. <laughs> when I was a, a kid, and up through about the last, I don't know, maybe five years ago is the last time this happened to me, I, I had a recurring dream, and the dream was that I could fly. And in that dream, I would... Uh, run with my head down as hard as I could with my arms pumping and jump and fall down and get up and start running again a little harder and jump and maybe float for a couple seconds and then fall down. And then finally after 10 or 12 of these attempts, I'd start rising higher and higher and all of a sudden I could fly. And I would fly around the rooftops of my town and looking down on the top of the trees and the chimneys. And and I know now that um, that little dream was a clear metaphor for the way I was going to lead my life. Um, we have a uh, five-year-old, and uh, we try real hard in, in terms of disciplining him. Uh, uh, when he does something wrong, what we might say to this guy is, uh, you know, uh, look, you little toad. Uh, you don't throw rocks through windows. It's wrong. It's dumb. People get hurt. You know, go to your room. We don't want to see you for a month. Um what I remember hearing very distinctly from my folks who met well and were, I think, loving parents, uh, and I love them uh, very much, but what I heard from them was stuff like, uh, you know we're really disappointed in you. You really hurt us by what you did. We wouldn't have expected this of you. And what happened to me, I think, because of this very subtle difference between what we're trying to do with our child now and what was done with me, was I started growing up with a value system that didn't have anything to do with right or wrong. It had only to do with approval, disapproval. And if somebody 
asked me for a Cliff Notes definition of spiritual bankruptcy. That's it. Okay, right there. It's uh, getting up in the morning with no idea what you're going to do or why you're going to do it, uh, except that it'll be the thing that will impress the most number of people and uh, get the most number of people to approve of you and what you're doing. Um, it's a horrible way to live. And unfortunately, it's a way that um, many, many of us, and especially I say many of us uh, physicians, uh, start off that way. And that's how we end up as physicians. It's also how we end up in AA. Um, I led my life by taking polls from people. Uh, do you think I should go in the Air Force or do you think I should go to college? Uh, I had no more insight than that. And uh, the more uh, people that I thought I could impress with what I would do, then that's what I would, would choose to do. Um, a, a corollary of this was that as I grew up uh, leading my life this way, uh, leading my, my life through the validation only of the pieces of paper that I could get to hang on the walls and the trophies that I could get to put on the mantelpieces, I began to feel this uh, incredible sensation of dis-ease inside me, the feeling constantly of being a fraud and that people were going to discover me, that I couldn't talk to people about my fears because um, they would think I was stupid. Uh, I went to college and I was the only person in a fraternity of about 90 that didn't drink. I never had touched alcohol because I was terrified of what I would look like if I lost control like those people out there. And instead, I would sit at the fraternity parties over in one corner, um, ogling everybody in the fraternity with my big buggy eyes and looking around. And, and uh, I got this reputation in school for being this incredibly deep person uh, because I never said anything. And the truth is, I uh, I had nothing to say. Um, a thing that I do now is uh, is to write. I write fiction, and uh, in my wildest imagination, I could never create a shallower person than I was during those days. I just couldn't. It doesn't exist, um, except for about five minutes. My junior year in college, uh, I had the insight. It was the only insight I can remember having until I got into this program. In fact. Uh, I went to my roommate, we were studying for mid-year exams, and I said, Stephen, there's something wrong with me. I don't feel anything. I feel like there's a huge black hole inside me that swallows feelings. And he patted me on the back and said, don't be silly. You're just studying very hard, and you're a terrific guy, and everybody envies you because you're the fraternity president, and, and you're getting good grades. And, and I bought into whatever he said, and that was the last time I asked a question about myself that I can remember. Um, I decided to go to medical school for, well, I, ha I used to have this litany of stories that I would tell the people about why I went to med school, uh, depending on what I thought they wanted to hear. Uh, if I thought they wanted to hear the bleeding heart for humanity story, I had that one. Um, I had a beauty, um, I'm not too proud of this story, but I definitely had it, uh, that I was dating a woman and, and we were sitting in my uh, dorm room and she had a stroke and I was so helpless, I felt so helpless and powerless uh, confronted with this that I decided to devote my life to healing. Um, I, I'm convinced now that whereas I may have done it for the wrong reasons, that being a doctor was the right thing for me to have done um, through no fault of my own. Uh, I was a tremendously fearful person and very bound up throughout this uh, whole college scene, but then between college and medical school, uh, something really incredible happened thanks to my parents. I got a job in Springfield, Massachusetts, working for the Williams Distributing Company, and they distributed um, Schaefer, Budweiser, Lowenbrow, Michelob, 
and my all-time favorite, wild turkey. Um, I lectured to the medical students about uh, alcoholism in our profession, and I, I, I uh, talked to all of them that if they want to find out if they're alcoholics, there are two ways to go. One is to the lab alcohol, and one is to wild turkey, um, which is 110 proof. Uh, I showed up for my first day in this um, beer distributing thing, and I was told I was going to drive the truck and uh, that I was going to have a helper who had been in the company for 25 years. And I didn't understand why if I'd been there for 25 minutes and he'd been there for 25 years, I was going to drive and he was going to be the helper. And then I saw him. Uh, <laughs> here's this little tiny Italian guy about five feet tall with a belly out to here that would not fit behind the wheel of the truck. Um, I was to soon learn in medical school what was inside that belly and what made his nose puff up like W.C. Fields and what made all those little spiders on the side of his cheeks and his bright red palms. But uh, all I was was nervous. And we went for our first stop and uh, there was a shot and a beer and a shot and a beer on the counter after we finished. And I said to the bartender at 9 o'clock in the morning, no, thank you, I don't drink. And this little tiny Italian guy whirled around and grabbed me by the throat, picked me off the floor and told me he'd kill me if he ever heard me say that again in a bar uh, because he needed the stuff. And he said that if I would just nurse this this bottle of beer and this shot, that he would take care of it. Uh, ten minutes later, I was licking the top of the bottle, and about ten minutes later, my social drinking ended. Um, I was smashed, and I tell you, it was the happiest day of my life. It's still the happiest day of my life. All of these incredible fears disappeared. All the anxiety that I ever had about my unworthiness disappeared. My inability to have friends disappeared. This man immediately became my best friend. The two of us drove completely stoned around Springfield, Massachusetts, in this huge beer truck with our arms around each other singing old Italian songs. <laughs> that, that may not seem like much to you, but I'm Jewish and I don't know any old Italian songs. I looked at myself in medical school, and I think a lot of other people did too, as being this um, hard-driving, hard-working, hard-drinking, hard-partying son of a gun. And what I was was a garden-variety alcoholic who happened to be in medical school who couldn't stop drinking once he started, and who was the one who always passed out, and who was the one who always had to have other people tell me what a, what a terrific time I had at this party and all the things that I did to entertain people. And... Uh, Gratefully, I didn't drink during the week. I just drank on weekends, but I inevitably disappeared when I drank. I don't think that I ever had a social drink. And it's still a mystery to me when I talk to people who can actually sit and sip a glass of wine at dinner. It doesn't make any sense to me. I'm not going to go through all the things that happened in my life uh, because of alcohol and subsequently because of drugs. But I will say that um, I like to think of the analogy kind of uh, the movie Bonnie and Clyde where, um, which uh, I haven't seen for a while now, but uh, I used to watch an awful lot, where Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway are these uh, cute bank robbers, and they drive around uh, through the Midwest robbing banks, and Flat and Scruggs play banjo music, and it's very cute, and they rob banks, and they're terribly cute, and they're terribly cute, and then all of a sudden, about two-thirds of the way through the movie, one of the bank people jumps up on the running board of the car, and one of them pulls out a gun and shoots him in the face, and it suddenly just isn't cute anymore, and uh, Basically, they go on to die this horrible death, 
and basically I was on my way to dying a horrible death and uh, I was in a um, I don't know how many of you like ice skating. My wife is crazy for it, so I get to watch it all the time. Uh, the death spiral where the guy holds the girl upside down and she keeps spinning around, stretched out closer and closer to the ice. And, uh, you know, I was in a death spiral uh, from this disease. Um, but I was still rising uh, in the outside world. Um, chief of medicine at my hospital, you know, my practice completely full as soon as I got into it uh, and uh, never missing a day of work. Uh, I'm involved now with the Mass Medical Society's Physician Health Services Program. I'm one of the associate directors. And uh, one of the first things that I did when I got involved as a volunteer with this program uh, 10 or 12 years ago uh, was to demand that this name be changed of impaired physician. You know, it's a, it's a term that terrifies me. It strikes fear into my heart because what we're desperately trying to do is to reach physicians before they become clinically impaired. Um, and I was one of those people that uh, would have said and did say to people, hey, wait a minute, I'm not impaired. I'm the chief of medicine in my hospital. Everybody loves me. All the patients come to see me. And somebody could say, you know, hey, wait a minute, your personal life's a mess. Your kids are disenfranchised. You're shooting drugs in the bathroom. Your office nurse is about to quit. And, um, and you're a mess. Your life is impaired. Uh, but nobody was uh, was able to get through to me at that time. Now we're getting up towards... Uh, what I wanted to talk about, which is the 12th step. Uh, I had probably more enablers per square foot than anybody that ever lived, uh, my partners, my family, my friends. By now, I was getting very sloppy and clumsy about my uh, drug use. I had sort of made the transition from alcohol, which is horrible, evil stuff that you can smell, to drugs, which those of you who have done a great deal of know that virtually nobody can tell. If you're good at it, they just can't tell. And uh, during the year... Uh, between which my partners knew now that I had a drug problem and the time that I finally um, uh, crashed and burned, uh, I was so arrogant and so crazy that I used to laugh at them because when I was cheerful and chipper and, and, and alive, they would pat me on the back and say, God, it's great to see you're doing so well, Michael. And when I was morose and kind of down in the dumps, they would go, are you okay? Are you okay? And the funny thing was, of course, that when I was alive and happy, I was high. And when I was morose, I was having to face life on its own terms. I didn't have any drugs in my body. Um, one day I got a call. Uh, I was living on Cape Cod and I was in practice on Cape Cod. And I got a call, a very a weird call from uh, a doctor down the Cape that I had never met or heard of before, um, Dr. Alec H. Um, he called to say that he heard via the grapevine that I was a doctor and I was having trouble with alcohol and drugs. And in my um, deep honesty that I had with the world, I said, well, I was, but I'm not anymore. I'm okay now. Uh, he said, well, frankly, I don't care whether you're okay or not. I just wanted you to know that there are other doctors with problems just like yours who meet periodically. And if you want to, I'll put you on the mailing list. And just to get him off the phone, I said, oh, okay, put me on the mailing list. And then they started coming about every two months, these um, brown envelopes that uh, Dr. Bob S., who's here designed the stationery uh, that said the Southern New England Professional Group on them. And I never opened the envelopes. I had no idea what the group was or what it was, you know, what was all about. I knew very little about AA, uh, which is remarkable considering that I did my training at Boston City Hospital. And if there was no alcoholism, there would be no Boston City Hospital. I, um, 
here's an idea of the of the level of my knowledge as a physician about Alcoholics Anonymous. I can remember standing in front of my down and out uh, Alkies in Boston City Hospital, shaking my finger at them and saying to them, "Look, either you stop drinking, or I'm going to make you go to AA." So I started getting these letters. I started getting these notices. The Southern New England Professional Group. Uh, meanwhile, I'm settling for less and settling for less in my life. I'm now out of my private practice uh, in disgrace, uh, but uh, through a one-month uh, hospitalization, which wasn't a treatment program and where they focused, um, because this was back in the 70s, they didn't have a great knowledge of physicians and addiction. They knew I was depressed, and so they focused on my depression and not my cure for depression. And, uh, and they said that uh, they understood that if... Um, if their life was as messed up as mine, they might be drinking and drugging too. And it wasn't until I got into this program that someone suggested that maybe my life was as messed up as it was because I was drinking and drugging. Um, I worked for a while as a doctor on a cruise ship. Uh, I was also the ship's pharmacist. <laughs> it's been 17 years and they're still trying to straighten out the books. Where did this one go? Where did this one go? Well, finally, all came crashing down, and I got caught uh, writing prescriptions for people that didn't exist. That's the way that I got drugs. That's the way all doctors who are addicts get drugs. Um, although the doctors who are doing it don't understand that they're not the only ones that have ever done this uh, before. Um, I was fired from my job. I was told by my boss at the time that I was a worthless um, piece of scum and that he would see to it that I never worked in medicine again and uh, was kicked out of the hospital, and I was grateful because I had decided uh, I was going to see a shrink seven days a week at that point. I was doing everything I could think of, and clearly it wasn't working. And I decided if I got caught again, I was going to kill myself. And I drove to New York, and I spent a crazy weekend saying goodbye to my friends and a lot of other people and uh, checked into a motel in Connecticut and poured all these drugs on the bed that I had brought with me to kill myself. And I sat there for the whole night. Um, I picked one of these motels that was just the kind of place that I would have picked to kill myself with the, with the beaded curtains on the closet and the fans slowly circling in the ceiling and the black and white TV that only got one channel and didn't get that very well. And I sat there, um, not believing that I was, I had two uh, kids at the time and, and not believing that I was going to, um, you know, never see them again and that this life that had so much promise was, was about to end. And through the grace of God, I made it through that night in that motel. Um, I'll never know for sure whether the brown envelope on the back seat of my uh, car was open or not. Uh, it's much kind of ro more romantic to say that it wasn't open than I opened it that morning when I went in there. But I think deep down in the back of my head during that horrible night, I knew I was near Newport, Rhode Island. I was about 60 miles away. And I knew there was a meeting of this group in Newport, Rhode Island on that day. And I went in the car and there was the notice and I drove to this place and I hadn't slept um, for the whole night and I was covered with um, just dirt and whiskers and uh, just completely beaten. And the last really, really hard thing I've had to do was to walk through the door of that place at Edge Hill. Um, that was just about 16 years ago. Uh, and there are a lot of people who are here uh, right now that were there for me 16 years ago. Um, but the person who was really there for me 16 years ago was that guy who called me. And he knows it. I've made it clear to him that he did it for me. Um, and all I can say is that I walked in there, I sat down, uh, one guy spoke, the second person that spoke was LeClaire, um, the third person was Charlie Harrell, who's been mentioned this morning already. Within 10 minutes of the time I got in that meeting, I was crying, 
within 15 minutes I knew I was going to be okay. I knew it. I just knew it. I've been going to see a shrink seven days a week at that point. Um, at this point, I've saved about two and a half million dollars in psychiatry. <laughs> I didn't lose my license, um, as the guy had predicted, and uh, was working again within a year. And uh, now, many years later, uh, the, uh, the most important part of my life remains uh, working with, with doctors. Um, and uh, I haven't been to this meeting before, uh, mostly because things just kept happening in August. Uh, I certainly, uh, because I did get sober and straight at a, uh, at a physician's meeting as the first one, I understand the need for them, even though uh, the founders of... Uh, of our fellowship uh, knew what they were doing when they wanted to rule out any special interest groups uh, in, in AA of any kind. And so I like to say that um, that doctors groups are a way of uh, like a shoehorn to get our egos through the door. Um, and that's really the way it was for me. I needed to have the strength of other doctors being around because I really did uh, think that I was special. Um, I love this program and I'm still very active in it on every level that I can be, but the one that uh, remains most important to me is trying to reach out to other people. Uh, I'm going to just talk for a, for a second about some ways, because we're all doctors together, that I personally are very important to me. Uh, up until about four years ago when I um, stopped working in the emergency ward, which is where I've been for a long time, uh, I was an animal about this disease in recovery, to, in a way to try and make up for all the times I turned my back on it. But it, working in the emergency ward especially, this is a typical scenario, um, and this one I'm giving you is actually a true one. Uh, Mrs. Jones, uh, the orthopedist, will be in in about a half an hour to um, fix your broken wrist. Uh, now, I'd just like to take a minute and talk about what I think is your real problem. And, and she would say, well, what's that sound? I said, well, it's 10.30 in the morning, and you fell off a footstool changing a light bulb, and you have alcohol on your breath. I think you have a problem with alcohol. Why, you're the stupidest doctor I've ever had. You're, you're, you're the worst thing I've ever heard, you arrogant young man. I'm going to write a letter to your hospital and, and this and that. And two years later, I'll be sitting at the back of an AA meeting, and there's this woman up there talking about the doctor who finally mentioned to her that she might have a problem with alcohol. You know, It might have taken her six months or a year to get, to get into this program. But uh, for me not to say something at that moment would have been you know, the worst kind of malpractice, and we all know it. Um, Another way that I've been an animal in the uh, in the ER, especially, is when uh, someone comes in and I I felt that it was uh, alcohol contributing to their problem, and I would say, I think you have a problem with alcohol, and they'd say, Well, I don't think so. And I'd say, Well, does that mean you could stop drinking if, say, a doctor asked you to stop drinking? And he'd say, Of course, of course I can. And his wife's there going in the background, going. <laughs> I'd say, Well, I'll tell you what. Uh, look at my little tag. It says Michael Palmer, M.D. Would would you take my word for it that I'd like you to stop drinking for, let's just say, three months? No problem, he said. I said, well, wait a minute. Let's not stop there. And I run over and get a clipboard and write out a contract for him. Okay, this is what you just agreed to do. You're not going to drink for three months. If you drink, you agree to go into a treatment center. His wife's going, please do that. Please do that. You know, I don't know if he's going to drink or not. He has to sign it. He's got to think about it. Um, to me, it's a very important act of uh, of honesty within this program and within my profession because I look back on when I was drinking and when I was drugging all the little SGOTs and GGTs that came back on the routine physicals in my office and they were off by a point or two points and I'd say well this may be due to alcohol maybe you better cut down or I just ignore them completely when there's a, a red flag danger signal that I could have contributed you know to my patients and I understand that now so um 
you know, I guess in, in closing, what I can say is that we should all hang tight to one another, you know, and even when we're away from these meetings to um, hang on to one another's hands and also to the hands of our patients because this is a devastating, horrible disease. And every time, especially a doctor, every time you get a doctor sober and straight, that doctor becomes an incredible force for good because of what we do for for a living. And uh, so we're all blessed for being here, and thank you all for listening.